the highest use of power is in self-sacrifice, where you get all the way to the absolute maximum of your power. And what do you do? You sacrifice yourself. There is a transcendent moral law that manifests in many cases in the form of fairness. Where does that come from? It seems to be woven into us at the deepest level in a way that we can't take out. And that points to the existence of a transcendent reality beyond ourselves. Welcome back to the Staying Free Podcast. So here we've got part two of my conversation with Will Spencer. So if you're just joining the Staying Free Podcast for this episode, make sure you go back first of all and listen to part one of this conversation. In this part, we go into the modern manosphere. We discuss Will's thoughts on femininity and feminism. And the majority of part two of this conversation is dedicated to a friendly debate about Christianity and specifically with regards to Christianity being the basis for morality. This is something which I personally disagree on, but I know that a lot of people do hold a view similar to Will's. And although we ultimately disagree, I definitely respect Will's thoughts and ideas and hope that you find that conversation interesting and get some value from that as well. As always, if you enjoyed the conversation, make sure you give the episode a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, give it a five-star rating, whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, welcome. Make sure you give the pod a subscribe for future episodes. You can support me in a bunch of ways. First is via buy me a coffee, where you can give a fiat donation. The second is via Bitcoin tips. That's both on-chain and via the Lightning Network. Links to those are in the description. And you can also support the show and help me grow by listening on the Fountain app, which is available on iOS and Android. Thank you to everyone who's already supported me. All donations are hugely appreciated and do go directly towards the cost of running the show. All right, here's part two of my conversation with Will Spencer from the Renaissance of Men. This whole kind of like manosphere movement, like what are your general thoughts mm. around it? Because I see people like um, Andrew Tate and I think that it's a terrible example of, you know, quote, mm-hmm. quote, masculinity. And, you know, I think I heard you say the same thing on your podcast. I think we'd agree here. It's just like people have been given this kind of like fake manufactured corp, you know, not even necessarily corporate. It's just like this really, I don't want to use the word toxic because there's so much stigma about the word toxic masculinity. I but I think there there is this aspect of it where I'm just like, that's not real masculinity. The kind of things that I see Andrew Tate doing. For me, that's just arrogance masquerading as, it's just pure unadulterated arrogance masquerading as masculinity, but it's not real masculinity. And I think that like you read, you know, books of um, people, you know, like great writers and stuff, and you get much more like genuine masculinity from that than you do from what, what people are being mm-hmm. served up now. So I guess, yeah, just um, a long roundabout way of saying, like, what are your general thoughts about the the uh, manosphere and, and Andrew Tate and all the rest of it that's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a big part of that is what we're looking at is masculinity that's about self-service, not other service. So what is so what is power for? This is a big question. This is a big question that um, I think Western society doesn't exactly know how to ask right now. But uh, so what is, what is power good for? The highest use of power, the highest use of power, which means you have to climb to get up there. The highest use of power is in self-sacrifice. This is the Christian story. This is the Braveheart story. This is, this is the gladiator story, right? Where you get all the way to the, ax, at the absolute maximum of your power. And what do you do? You, sac- you sacrifice yourself. That's also part of the Lord of the Rings story in both Aragorn and Frodo. Um, that they're the climactic when it shows up all throughout the Lord of the Rings, actually Gandalf is the most powerful, uh, single being in middle earth. What does he do? He sacrifices himself to defeat the Balrog, right? Uh, Legolas and Gimli show an example of this, that these are two, like they're elves and dwarves. They're, uh, they hate each other. They're blood enemies, 
but they have to sacrifice themselves in a sense to become friends to accomplish the mission. What is Aragorn going to do? Aragorn at the very end in the Battle of the Black Gate, that's a suicide mission. They're trying to get Sauron to draw all his forces out to try and take down Aragorn because Sauron thinks Aragorn has the ring in order to draw all the forces away to give Frodo a chance. Aragorn's ready to die. That's why he has tears in his eyes and he says for Frodo and goes charging into the battle because he thinks he's going to sacrifice himself at the pinnacle of his power. He's wearing the battle armor and he's got the sword and look at Frodo. Frodo, with all the strength of his endurance, he's prepared to sacrifice himself to destroy the ring. The highest use of power is in self-sacrifice. This is what it means to be a husband. This is what it means to be a father. And this is what Andrew Tate does not promote. Andrew Tate uses masculine power purely in self-service for the continual acquisition of wealth and status and women and more and more and power and like poor power for the sake of itself. So because we've lost a sense of the Christian ideal in the West, we don't have a sense that the highest use of power is in self-sacrifice. And of course, what do we see? When we look at our leaders across Western nations, what are they doing? They're enriching themselves. It is not a question that Joe Biden has enriched himself through his crackhead son, Hunter Biden, on the back of the Ukraine deal. That those, pap- like that, those papers are in the open. No one cares. Get, get, young, get, get some, get yours, whatever. But the highest use of power is in self-sacrifice. And we know this as men. We know this. We look at like, like Aragorn in Helm's Deep, right? Like you mentioned earlier, right? Or me on the sailboat in my own, in my own limited way. He's like, ride out with me. Let's go. Let's sacrifice ourselves for this, for this cause. And so we know this in our hearts as men, as men and as women too, but we have so few examples of it. So the real tragedy of Andrew Tate is that he shows something that's true, but only partially true. A man is meant, and the manosphere as well, and the red pill as well. A man is meant to go into the world and achieve with drive and conquer and earn prosperity. But why? What is the telos or purpose of that? To sacrifice himself on behalf of a family in the next generation. That is the highest use of power. That's why Andrew Tate is so dangerous, is he reflects all of the values of quote unquote Western civilization that we have today, but none of the roots of it, which are in the, which are in the Christian story. Nice. Yeah, I think you've uh, articulated that really, really well. So I won't labor that point anymore. Um, Thank you. Just one more on the um, on the masculinity stuff, and then I'll start to transition because I know I did, did want to reserve a bit of time to talk about religion or Christianity yes. specifically. Um, there's something that you mentioned in one of your podcasts, and I think you got this from a book. So I don't know if this is this is your theory or something that you've kind of been talking about from from the book. But it was the archetypes of king, warrior, I think it was king, warrior, magician, and lover. Is that right? Yes. And you, that's, yes. you talked about these four archetypes. Can you, can you discuss that a little? Because um, I'm, I love the, you know, the idea of archetypes and stuff. I think they're, they're really, really useful for actually kind of like learning new concepts and to try to, to actually meditate on you know, spirituality and stuff. So, but I don't know anything about that. So do you mind just kind of going into that a little? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to be careful in, in how I talk about this because these archetypes come from Carl Jung and uh, Carl Jung, there's, it's very complicated. He's another uh, another individual that I was influenced by, but I definitely don't don't recommend from a theological perspective, especially, but for the purposes of the, con- of the conversation, what these, what these archetypes essentially are is they're uh, parts of us that are, say, written into our psyche or into our souls that we resonate with men that 
paint the different paint the many different pictures of what it means to be a man. So uh, this shows up primarily in Christianity in terms of like the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's the Christian vision. We'll talk about how these differ in a minute. But in the in the Jungian vision, uh, the book is King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. I've had Douglas Gillette on my podcast, and then I had recently had my mentor, Glenn Barker, on, and he talks about this as well. That was my three-year anniversary episode. So um, they have they talked about these, they talked about these also. So the archetypes embody different forms of masculinity that we need to learn to integrate within ourselves, within our personality to be whole men. So that's the different ways, the different ways we move through our life. So let's let's start with the lover, right? We move through life as men. Um, with with passion and enthusiasm and sensuality and enjoyment of the world around us. A man who's not able to enjoy his life becomes very hard and very brittle and there's no life-giving nature to him. Uh, there's the warrior. Naturally, we're very, we've been talking about the warrior conquest, drive, discipline, execution. There's a lot of that in the masculinity space. Um, the magician is about expertise, knowledge, being able to turn one thing into another. So if you if you if you're a sculptor, and someone hands you a block of wood and you transform the wood into this beautiful wooden sculpture, you know, that's a, that can be an example of lover, warrior, and magician working together. The magician has a specialized knowledge to make something, you know, out of the out of the solid block of wood. The warrior has done the daily discipline to get good at carving, and the lover feels the beauty of of, of the final finished piece and is able to create something evocative. And then the final piece is the king. The king is when those three elements of us as men stand up and begin working in harmony. That's how we become the king. We, we attain to this king state right? It's not something, it's not an aspect of ourselves that's just there. It just has to emerge by the other pieces of us working together harmoniously. And then if we can repeat that process of carving that thing, we build a business, we support a family, et cetera, and then we become the king and we live that out. So those are the different ways of thinking about king, warrior, magician, lover, the ways that they fit together to inform our experience of men, of how it is in our highest expression of what it means to be a man. The Christian model is prophet, priest, and king, which has a, which has a much stronger focus on our relationship with God. So the king embodies these this the same aspects kind of that we're talking about the management of the household, financial performance, etc., leadership, uh, things like that. The prophet represents God to his people, and the priest represents the people to God. So what that means from a perspective of a prophet is you have the Bible. And you're making sure that the people who are following you, whether it be in a church or whether it be in a household, are aware of what God, God's law teaches, God's relationship teaches. And then the priest ministers to them and helps them heal and grow. So there's a different, slightly different reflection. But the whole idea be between archetypes is to look at the different functions that men serve in society uh, and in our lives and cultivate those to their fullest and healthiest expression rather than trying to fit into this one narrow vision. So this is, again, why in that class on Carl Jung that I took in when I was in college in 2001, why it was so powerful. Because in The Lord of the Rings, here are all these different images of masculinity, right? All these different functions. You have the, you have the king, the, the, the Aragorn figure who's struggling to attain to kinship. He still has to kingship. He still has to be a warrior. You have the humble servant in Frodo. You have the loyal friend in Sam. You have the, you have the graceful you know, and, and, and fast Legolas, and you have the gruff and stern Gimli, and then you have the old man and Gandalf, and then you have the horse lords. So all these different pictures of masculinity, none of which is the picture of masculinity, 
but each one has different elements of it. And we find these have different manifestations in our lives as men. The king version of Will might be very different from the king version of Johnny, but we each get to manifest those into service with service being as the highest goal in our lives. And so that's kind of what the archetypes are about. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, appreciate you um, breaking that down. And then mm. just before we move on to the onto the Christianity stuff, which hopefully we'll have a bit of time for, I just yes. want to get your, your your idea because we've talked a lot about masculinity, and if we haven't alienated my entire female audience by now, <laughs> just be good to get your ideas as well on like what what is the divine feminine, what's the nature of the the feminine? Have you thought much about that as well, and and how would you kind of articulate that? Hmm. So, uh, where one of the things that I that I tell. Um, men and women is that we process reality very differently. Um, men relate to reality primarily through our, our rational minds and our bodies, meaning physically, right? Um, women relate to reality primarily through their emotions and their intuitions. So, um, so Alison Armstrong has, uh, she's a, a friend of mine and she, she has a great series of books called, she has a great book called the Queen's code, which teaches women how to relate to men. What she says is that men relate to reality with single focus and women relate to reality with diffuse awareness. And it's kind of difficult for us to imagine as men what it is to relate to reality with diffuse awareness in the same way that it's very difficult for women to relate to men understanding with single focus. Like we're different down to the very levels of our psyches. In fact, there's a book called uh, The Essential Difference by Simon Baron Cohen, which talks about the, the differences essentially of, our, of men and women brains. We're different down to the level of our brain chemistry and brain configuration. So we can talk about the whole, why that makes the trans thing silly, but you know, what's remaining of your audience. <laughs> but um, so the thing is, I'm not sure I have the, a big the, trans audience. You're all right. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, the politically incorrect things, right. But um, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not something that, that, that I would, I try to be respectful of my, of my gracious hosts. Um, so, uh, so and I try not to be too much of a bull in their particular China shop. Some days I do better than others. I know. So, it's fine. Uh, feel free to feel free to be a bull in my China shop. <laughs> okay. Got it. I see, I see a cabinet over there in the corner I'm going for. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but, um, so, so, uh, in this, in this, it's not that relating to the world through rationality and physicality or emotions and intuitions are better or worse. They're just different and they're complementary. Now, again, the, the, uh, the, we have to lead through life with rationality because reality is reality and can't be negotiated with, but relational ability is so powerful. We have no relational ability when it comes to the hard laws of nature. Again, that's why men's rationality is what produces prosperity out in the world. But you go into the workplace, the workplace is what? Primarily relational, right? So we've inverted the workplace to be friendly to women's skills. And that's why it creates this perception that women are better and suited in some careers. There may be some careers that are primarily relational, but I would, I would push back and say, like, it's also possible those careers probably need a bit more rationality in them. But that aside, so what's the role of men and women? What's the role of women in this? I would like to see a world where women are less forced to rely on their card, hard, cold rationality and less on their physicality and more on their emotions and intuitions and simply allowed to be in that feminine space, protected and led and guided by men who take on the burden of rationality, who take on the difficult burden of hard reality and allow women to simply be feminine and be in touch with their inner natures. 
But again, it means they have to give up competing in the marketplace, forcing themselves into positions where it's like, I don't want to be the boss babe career, career gal competing with men. I don't, I don't want to have to do that anymore because naturally women's bodies start letting them know somewhere around 28 to 32, like, Hey, you have all these relational gifts that are meant to be put in service to children. Women's emotions and intuitions are designed, I think, so that they can communicate with pre-verbal children because children emote to let them, you know, to, to announce their states because they can't talk. So those relational skills that women have are meant to be put into service of children in the same way that men's skills for rationality and physicality are meant to be put into service for a family. And so what are, what are women's roles in this? The two halves of any family are the projector and the provider and the nurturer and the cultivator of the next generation. Men cannot cultivate and nurture the next generation, right? So men have never, men don't really try. The stay at home dad is a losing proposition for many men. But somehow in our society, it's, th it's thought to be okay for women to try and be the protector and provider. But that only works again, as we talked about, if you suppress the, the masculine ability to do that. So the more, more balanced perspective of society is recognizing who are we really as beings, as men and women? How can we learn to work together and maximize our particular skills? Let go of the things that we quote unquote want to do and surrender into the things that we're designed to do. Men can be entirely relational as well. This is why men can be lazy. This is why men can make excuses. That's men being relational. When a man makes an excuse to another man for not doing well in something, what he's doing is leveraging his relational ability to make it all right that he screwed up. That's what an excuse is. Like, oh, let me go. That's, that's men being relational, right? It doesn't look good. No one, no one likes it. We prefer the man who says, I'm going to do this and such and such a date, I'm going to date, I'm going to show up and I'm going to get the job done. Those are the men that we respect, right? So men leaning on their strengths of confronting hard reality with rationality makes us better in the same way that when you get a boss babe in a career environment, all the guys are like, oh, it's a little bit like nails on a chalkboard. We've learned to, to um, really, we've learned to tolerate it and, and even honor it in some cases, but like uh, guys don't really like it. Right. So, but when that same woman's, and you'll see this in the book, The Queen's Code, written by Alison Armstrong, when that same aggressive career gal softens into her femininity and can simply be relational and be free in that way, this whole new side of her comes out that she's been suppressing. So, men and women leaning on our strengths, again, it's hugely politically incorrect, but I think it's the best way to a happy and free society. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, when you were saying that, then I was thinking about the boss, boss babes that I know. And I was like, could I imagine that these people being, you know, nurturing and affectionate and right. all these things? I'm like, I couldn't, but then, but then it's like, well, is that is, you know, it's like, I don't know whether that's necessarily everyone's natural disposition. Who's a woman. I think that my, my belief at this point is that some women are just outside of that. And maybe it's from their own bringing upbringing. Maybe it's from their own past, et cetera. Right. They've developed more masculine traits, et cetera. But, um, you know, I, I, it would, it would almost, you almost have to be in this new society and then see, well, where, where do people fit into that? Because under the current society, everything's kind of so, so distorted. I can't tell whether the natural disposition is to be the boss babe or whether that is an artificial, uh, artificial thing, which has kind of emerged through a kind of misalignment of gender dynamics in society. It's, it's really hard to say it would involve a lot yeah. of overlapping, uh, overlapping questions like upbringing, um, you know, is a big part sure. of it, uh, you know, from both, um, from both uh, mother and father perspective, past heartbreaks, you know, misaligned desires. It, it, it can be very, it could be very complicated. 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, but I, I think, I think in general, if allowed to kind of revert to who we're made to be, there would be much, much less of that. And I would imagine, I would suspect in the same way that if you find a man who's being lazy and not showing up and leveraging his relational ability to kind of get by in life, if we were to dig into that guy, we would probably find some significant grief somewhere in his life. I suspect the same would be true for that woman. Now I honor them both in that while acknowledging that this is not, it's not an ideal state. It's adaptive, but it's not ideal. Okay, cool. So I listened to one of your um, episodes and I, I'm assuming that this is where your journey towards Christianity began, but if it's not, then obviously correct me. But you said that mm. you had, I think you said you had 20 seconds with Jesus, a di direct experience, 20 seconds with Jesus at some point in your life. And um, mm. I'm wondering what you, what you meant by that. Like what, what was that experience? Um, I, I don't know that I said, I have written in a blog in the past that I went, I think I said I went to hell for 20 long seconds. Yeah. I might've got this wrong. I think the episode that I was listening to, it was called, it was an essay that you, you did called to lose the oh, world yeah, and, gain that, my, and gain my soul. And it was yes. somewhere in there that you mentioned, maybe I, I, I've got this wrong. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you kind of go ahead into, into that journey towards Christianity for you. Yeah. So, so uh, just to say, I went to hell for 20 long seconds. That was the, that was the blog post to gain the world and lo ah, to okay. lose the world and gain my soul. So what that was, uh, since we talked about it earlier, that was on a, that was on a, a, a psychedelic journey that was on a fire that was Bufo Alvarius, which is DMT. So, um, I went mm -hmm. to something that I was, that I was pretty sure would, would have been my version of hell if it wasn't hell entirely. And so that's, uh, that was the last psychedelic journey I ever took. It was about a year before I became a Christian. And as I thought back through that experience, when I wrote that blog post to gain the world and lose my soul, um, I was in the process of becoming Christian, but hadn't gone all the way there yet. Um, it was a couple months before, but that, that, um, Bufalvarius DM2, DMT journey was, um, that wasn't fun. Uh, but the journey to become Christian is, is a bit different, um, from that. So, um, the journey to become Christian, um, was a result of 30 years of exploration through different forms of spirituality. So I, I grew up Jewish. Um, I was bar mitzvahed, I've been to Israel. I was part of the Jewish students association. When I was in college, we did all the Passover and Rosh Hashanah and Hanukkah every year. Um, and I went to a Catholic high school that was the best school in town. Then I went to the Bay Area to go to college. And then in college in the Bay Area, naturally, I was exposed to um, all different forms of Eastern spirituality. That's Carl Jung was sort of part of that. I was in the dance and DJ rave scene. And that was all about like Hinduism and New Age stuff and all these syncretic kind of beliefs. Uh, and then get into depth psychology, you know, into that men's retreat, you know, that's sort of more Carl Jung stuff. And then when I traveled, there was ayahuasca and sacred geometry and then Vipassana meditation and Hindu festivals. So I was very, when I, when I said, I think at the start of the conversation that what I said before I went traveling was I'm going looking for God. There was truth to that. It just sounded more grandiose than it ended up being. Um, it wasn't that, it wasn't that overt, you know, it was like more of a, it was more of a serendipitous, um, serendipitous quest than a focused journey, a serendipitous journey than a focused quest is the right way of putting that. So mm -hmm. I had explored all these different aspects of world religions, but it was in 2015 before I traveled that I went to Burning Man. And that was where I met a group of Christians that were running an underground ministry group. 
And at the end of a three-hour encounter with them where they didn't say a word to me about Christianity, but they were just being very warm and loving, I had a, I had a vision of Christ. And I, at the end of this, I'm like, well, who are you? And they said, we're Christians. Like, what? What are you doing here? It's like, we've been running this ministry showing God the Father's love to people for the past 12 years. And so that was my introduction to the heart of Christianity, but that wasn't my conversion experience. Because I still thought that all world religions were are equal paths up to God, I was like, cool, I've got the Christianity Pokemon. I'm just going to go on with my journey. So then I went to travel and I do all the, did all those things. So a couple of things happened at once while I was traveling. Um, first is I became aware of uh, the existence of guys like Jeffrey Epstein, child sex trafficking, which I think we would probably regard as evil. A capital E evil. Mm -hmm. The problem with the new age world is the new age world says all is one. So all things are one. So you can try to be a good person and do good things and take care of people, but you are just as much God as Jeffrey Epstein is. Right. And it's, there's no such thing as good or evil. There's just karma and lessons. So I was like, are you going to tell me, and I mentioned this earlier, are you like, not you, you, but are you going to look into the eyes of a child being sex trafficked and saying, sorry, kid, this is just a soul, that, the lesson that your soul needs to learn or say that the process of being a child sex trafficker is a lesson that his soul needs to learn. Like, and that's God. I just could not, I could not get down with that. I think, I think that idea is morally and logically incoherent. And when I would confront people in the new age about it, they would shut down and change the subject. They would just paper over it. We don't want to talk about that. You know, they, they were unable to come to grips with this fundamental un undeniable aspect of reality that now everyone's just kind of aware of. Like we know who Jeffrey Epstein is. A lot of people know who Ghislaine Maxwell is. And we just kind of know that all these terrible things are happening and we just look the other way. But it's not like anyone's denying it. Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of child sex trafficking counts, convicted in a court of law. So we know now that evil is real. There's no denying it. But from the New Age perspective, if all is one, then that's God too. And that's just karma. That's this kid's karma. That's that person that didn't make any sense. Again, logically incoherent. Now, I, didn't, I couldn't find anyone to talk to me about it until I got back to the United States in February of 2020. So the friends who had introduced me to Christ at Burning Man four years, uh, five years earlier, gave me a book called Simply Christian by N.T. Wright. I still have it on my shelf. And in this book, uh, N.T. Wright talk, says, uh, does this image. I've told this story many times. Christ up on the cross, this giant wave of evil came to crash over him. And through his death and sacrifice and resurrection, he drove back the wave of evil forever. And I read that image and, and like, I got it. Something clicked. And then I started reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and the screw tape, screw tape Letters also by C.S. Lewis. And what I've said many times is that these books were the first time anyone had spoken to me about Christianity like I was an adult. Meanwhile, as all this is going on, COVID is happening. Now, Mere Christianity is the moral, rational, logical case for the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis was a, was a hardened atheist and became a Christian, and then wrote Mere Christianity as a series of lectures he gave over the radio during World War II, like 1943 or something like that. He gave, the, gave these radio addresses to the, to, the, uh, to the British people while they were under assault, essentially, and then he turned it into book Mere Christianity. And then the screw tape letters is the side of evil, how evil works in, in the world. So I was reading both these sides. And again, like I said, it was the first time that anyone had spoken to me about Christianity like I was an adult. And finally, finally, I found a world religion 
that was able to speak openly about evil and reflect a real understanding of evil and not change the subject, confront it head on and say, yes, evil is an independent thing that has its own, that has its own reality. And is, it is not good on any level of reality. It just seeks to destroy the good from its own conscious, willful intention, which doesn't exist in an all is one mindset and only exists in an all is two mindset, which we can talk about. That was so compelling to me that I got baptized Christian in September of 2020 with the same friends that I had met at Burning Man without really understanding a whole lot about what Christianity was, but I had tried everything else really. I mean, except for Islam, but that's a whole different thing. You have to, Islam's a, a, a very difficult path to walk. I had tried basically everything else. And so I was like, well, let's try this way. And through this door of Christianity, I found everything that I was ever looking for, especially in the face of COVID when you suddenly see undeniably all this nonsense and all this tyrannical state-sponsored evil taking hold of these otherwise rather nice nations. For example, in 2019, I was living in New Zealand. I left New Zealand in February 2020 before COVID became a thing. I was there for a relationship. That relationship didn't work out. I left. I moved back to the States. Then COVID happened in New Zealand, which was one of the nicest places on, in the world to live, right? It was like 1950s America, but tropical, became one of the most tyrannical nations on earth. What happened? What happened? Evil was undeniable. So that's why I'm reading these things and seeing these civilizational level evils evolving. I'm not the only one. Now, how that fits into masculinity is in the manosphere, they root masculinity in evolutionary psychology, right? It's all about evolution. We've evolved this way as men and women, right? And so this is, this is where they root their authority in. Um, the problem is evolution says everything is always changing all the time, right? It's a response to conditions. So if everything is always changing all the time, responding to conditions and the, may the, may the, and the survival of the fittest, that's no place to root masculinity because you can just say, well, conditions have changed. And so now masculinity is no longer needed. F quote unquote, femininity is what's needed. So you can't root masculinity in shifting sands of, of evolution. It just means if circumstances change, then you're no longer the top of the food chain anymore. Sorry. So at the same time as I was reading these books about Christianity, its perspective on good and evil, I re was reading its understanding of what it means to be a man, that you have God the Father sending his son to suffer and die, to pay the debt, to take responsibility for other people's actions. And that may seem quite horrific to imagine, except when you realize that God is actually sacrificing himself to pay our debt. That is the sacrificial responsibility of a father, of taking on our responsibility onto himself to liberate humanity. And what that says for families, what that says to model for men, and that the Bible is the word of God and that God is eternal and that God's, the way that we root masculinity is in eternity unchanging, unwavering eternity. And that's the only place that you can root masculinity. And that is why the feminist rebellion is a rebellion against God's created order at the deepest level. Because God says from eternity past, this is who I am. This is who men and women are. This is who I made you to be. And these are the roles that you have to uncomfortably find yourselves in. And feminism determined, there's a book by Rachel Wilson called Occult Feminism. And I validated this elsewhere in my work. Feminism was an occult uh, magic with a K order to try and upend that. You have um, Helena Blavatsky, who is one of the earliest proponents of quote unquote, what we call new age today, said that the chiefs of the, of the theosophical order regard Christianity as particularly pernicious. That's the exact word pernicious 
to her theosophical occult order. So the new age itself is entirely a revolt against, uh, against God, the father as reflected in scripture, uh, Christianity driven by women to upend the social order. And so that's why we are where we are right now. So I'm not the only person who came to Christ in 2020 has begun talking about these timeless values. And so that's why these two threads of masculinity and religion and Christianity came together during summer of 2020 and helped me start the Renaissance of men. Okay. All right. That's um, cool. A couple things in there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, I just want to pick you up on something you say when you were talking about the the Epstein stuff and how that kind of got you thinking about, well, there has to be some explanation to this beyond just, you know, this person is on their, their path of learning, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I, I hear what you say. Like, I understand like where you're coming from there. And I, I mean, personally, just to kind of briefly tell you kind of where I'm at, like, I, I think there's mm. a lot of truth in, in, in Christianity generally. I think that the, the whole story of Jesus and dying on the cross and Adam and Eve, like there is a huge amount of imbued, truth in all, in those stories generally and i think that we kind of dismiss it at our peril essentially however mm. like i'm not a christian and i also think that there's a lot to be taken I, i'm not even sure whether necessarily say say new age but i just don't think that i don't see the two as in such a contradiction as you do so i want to kind of like mm. um try and articulate this point here which is that you know mm-hmm. you mentioned this thing about you know like for instance kids uh being sex trafficked etc and the new age doesn't have necessarily an answer for that but i would say well what what would your answer, for instance, be as a Christian to someone who gets, you know, um, like, for instance, who gets injured in a natural disaster? You know, let's say that they they mm-hmm. they drown in it, or you know, something happens, like, or let's say they die, or they they get injured in a in a tornado, or struck by lightning, or whatever it is. To, to what's what's the Christian um, answer to that? Because I would say that it'd be pretty similar to the the New Age answer, or Sorry, let me uh, let me try and mm-hmm. articulate mm-hmm. this a bit better. I don't see how the answer to that from a Christian perspective is any different is any different to saying, well, the person being sex trafficked. Ultimately, it all comes down to there is there is suffering that exists in the world, and that suffering is is a bad thing, and we have to overcome it. But what's the difference there? Just because there is a, a perpetrator in one sense, you know, a murderer, a rapist, etc., can we not all just come back to the mutual agreement, which is agreed upon between Christianity or new age or whatever other thing, which is just that suffering is bad and evil is bad and it exists. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, there's a lot in there um, that, that I, w- I want to take apart, but I'll start with answering the direct question. So this, it's funny that you bring this up because, um, because N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian actually addresses that exact argument um, about, about what about natural disasters? And he, he comes at it a couple different ways. One of the ways that he comes at it is to say that where a lot of these, um, where a lot of these natural disasters happen is, uh, and the reason why people are affected in the first place by them is in many cases due to, due to human evil, right? So like these floods, like what's happening to these, to many of these nations that get, that get flooded out, right? Human evil, which is a product of the fall, is what's enabling these communities to be wiped out by, by natural disasters. So he says, if we were to, if we were to really have a, a good doctrine of sin and evil and humanity and really confront it with the truth of the gospel, many of the people who die as a result of these natural disasters in, say, flood-prone areas, that wouldn't be the case. But setting that aside, setting that argument aside entirely, thank you for giving me the chance to remember these arguments, by the way, for setting that aside entirely. 
like someone's someone's walking down the street and he gets like struck by lightning or whatever just randomly right and dies mm-hmm. so so what the story what, what the christian story says is that adam and eve were handed a perfect world par- true paradise with no death no suffering just a real a garden to cultivate and keep forever they were tempted and they fell and really the fall is better known as it's better called a crash this perfect world was corrupted. Why? Because God had made Adam and made Eve and God made a deal with Adam and said, you have, this is all the things that you get. Just don't do this one thing. Eat from the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Eat from the tree of good and knowledge of good and evil. What happened? God made this covenant with Adam. What's a covenant? A covenant is as, as a deal solemnly administered with blessings for following it and curses for not following it. That's a covenant. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam then was responsible. God made that. You can look in the scripture. You can see God says it to Adam. Then God makes Eve. Adam was responsible for discipling Eve in the covenant. What happens in the garden? The serpent comes into the garden and tempts Eve. Adam is there, but the serpent tempts Eve. Eve misunderstands because Adam didn't disciple her well and is tempted and deceived, which is what scripture says, that Eve was deceived, and she eats the fruit. Adam's standing right there. In that moment, Adam has a choice. Adam can listen to the voice of his wife, or he can listen to the voice of God who he made the deal with, who he made the covenant with. Adam eats the fruit and listens to his wife, and they're immediately ashamed and they cover themselves. And God shows up and says, what happened? And Adam passes the buck. Everyone passes the buck. And so what does God do? Well, he made a covenant with Adam. Adam broke the covenant. Therefore, for breaking the covenant, there's a curse. So what does God do? God then curses a serpent. He curses Eve. And then he curses Adam and he curses the ground around Adam. He curses this perfect garden world that he had made and given as a gift to Adam and Eve. If you follow the deal, Adam broke the deal. God curses the whole world and the word world falls or it crashes And what enters the world is sin and death and evil. And so this perfect garden world that was set up to nurture us and for us to cultivate and keep and love and be loved in it gets corrupted. And it turns into a place where there are earthquakes and floods and lightning strikes and locusts and destruction. Because we as humans, our first father, not we as humans, but our first father, the, the first parents who everyone issues from broke that deal. And so that is why that is why that there is death and destruction and suffering because we messed up thousands and thousands of years, thousands of years ago. The new age version of that story is not true. The new age version of that story is everything is lessons designed to get us to transcend duality of good and evil and pop out into this higher reality where there is no, there is no good or evil at all. And we realize that it's all subjective. That's the new age version of the story. The Christian version of the story is like, no, God made reality. He called it very good. He gave it to us. We messed it up. And now we have to endure the consequences of that. And there's more to it than that. But those are two very different stories. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't um, dispute that the kind of what the story is kind of articulating and what that story actually means and its it's significance, et cetera. The, The point where... The point that I that I dispute, though, is just the idea that something like Jeffrey Epstein and something like the evil of Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein, that the the thing which you artic- articulated before, what I don't understand is why 
is why that can only be, be explained from a Christian perspective and that, that only the Christian perspective has a um, an explanation for it. Because for me, the Christian explanation for it is evil exists. This person, you know, is a manifestation of evil and they're doing evil things to other people who are innocent people. And I don't mm-hmm. see how you couldn't also just say, well, someone getting struck by lightning, someone being born by a, a birth defect or something that is just suffering happening. You know, there is th- bad things happening. And even if you take it back and say, well, look, these things happen, these bad things happen in the world because of the breaking of the covenant, etc." Even if you accept that and say, that's the reason these things happen. Why is it that only Christianity has an explanation for that? Because I would say that like, even in, uh, even if you're a non-Christian, like I'm a non-Christian and I still look at, I can still recognize evil. I can still recognize and say, Jeffrey Epstein's evil. Uh, he's doing evil thing to these people. These people have been wronged and they are suffering just in the same way that other people suffer when there's no perpetrator, just in the same way as someone might suffer from it, from being born by a, you know, a rare illness or by, from a natural disaster or something that, would, that is completely out of their control. Suffering sometimes just exists in the world. Sometimes there's a perpetrator, sometimes not. But I don't see why you have to have a Christian perspective to understand or be able to kind of contextualize that suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. So, um, so, the question is not whether suffering and evil exist in a in a in a in a relative sense. Like obviously, we can look around and see evil all around us in a relative sense. The question is, does suffering and evil exist in an absolute sense? Now, what do I mean by that? In the Christian story, suffering and evil exists in an absolute sense. It is a real thing, all the way, almost all the way down. Right, it's a it is a it is a real thing with real existence. It's not an in the New Age story. Evil is an illusion created by a trick of our relativized perception. That if we were merely to look from a higher level, we would look down and see that evil and good are just two halves of the same coin. That's only because of our of our um, of our cultivated human biases, our conditioned human biases. That's Buddhism. Buddhism says that our that it's our conditioning that that help, that conditions us to see good and evil as two as two separate things when in fact they're just two halves of the same thing. Christianity says no, that's not the case at all. Evil is a real thing all the way down, all the way down. It's not because of a trick of our conscious perception, it's because evil is really a real thing. And these are these are two very different perspectives of reality. It's not to deny the existence of evil, it's to say like it's to say, how, how deep does evil go? In the Christian story, evil goes all the way. In the Buddhist story, it just goes, whatever your relativized perceptions are, and if you meditate long enough, you will stop being able to see good and evil, and you'll receive that just, you'll see that all is one. So essentially what that means is evil has no enduring reality. It's just, it's just something that is like everything else that is, and it's all God too. And I find that like morally I don't, I, I don't find that morally coherent or morally consistent because our entire being rebels against it when we see evil. Like if you see one of the things that I, that I can't stand is cruelty to animals. I can't, I can't stand it. It, it. it creates in me is revulsion. Why? Why? Is it a trick? Is it really something that deep that runs to the, the, the level of my, it's just my, I just need to condition it out of myself. If I conditioned that revulsion out of myself through meditation, wouldn't I be losing some essential part of my humanity if I just said, nope, all things are one, right? Versus like, no, that's evil. And so this is this is why the new age is so profoundly neutering to humanity. It just divorces us from our ability to be able to make judgments and discernments of good and evil and say, that's right, that's wrong. And instead it's like, nope, it's all just one and it's all just good. And that, and that leads to chaos. 
that, that leads to chaos because we cannot enforce order. I mean, I don't see in the new age movement, I don't see this idea that we should ignore injustices in the world though. I still think that that can like completely coexist. I mean, you know, when I meditate, I'm not meditating to try to transcend my care towards bad things that are happening in the world. I'm meditating purely for it to, to achieve a state of kind of balance in my own consciousness and actually to be able to approach those situations from a more centered position and to make more righteous choices, et cetera, in the world. And also when it comes to what you were saying about, um, you know, that new age says, okay, well, from a higher perspective that evil and good are all part of the same, the same kind of like cosmic goo and that we can look at it from a higher perspective and realize it's all part of the oneness. But then isn't that also true in Christianity? Because if you if you accept that God, that God created the suffering in the world on the basis of the, of the curse, right? The curse, which came about through the breaking of the covenant, then you are also accepting that God is that God is responsible for the suffering in the world through that. So if you're accepting that, are you not also by the same token saying, well, evil is coming from God as well. And therefore it's all part, it's all part, everything is created by God ultimately. So you go back stream of that and it's all part of the same oneness. I see them being very, very similar in that sense. So I'm not sure how you, dif how you differ differentiate those two ideas. Sure. I love this stuff, by the way. So it seems, so we'll, we'll deal with the, we'll deal with the, um, the first question that you asked and we'll, and we'll deal with the, the, the seeming parallels between the question yeah, and the new sure. age story second. So the first question is, um, the new age people would agree that these things are morally reprehensible, but by what standard, by what standard do you say that's wrong? Like, okay, so you, you don't like it, but like, what to, what do you appeal? So someone, someone is there, God forbid, kicking a dog, right? And you say, that's wrong. And this person says, all is one. How can you, by what standard do you say that's wrong? What do you respond? Well, I, I where think do you get your have... moral authority from? Well, where did you get your moral authority from before you were Christian? Did you still think it was bad to kick a dog? Right. But, but, but I can tell you, I can tell you where that moral authority comes from, but, but I, I'm, the question is, the question is for you. This is the, this is a directed question. Where does your moral authority come from to call right from wrong? Yeah. Well, I think that my, I think that the moral judgment that I'm making there is based upon an emotional response that I have from seeing suffering happen. So I think that I have an mm -hmm. ingrained emotional response from seeing suffering occur, which okay. causes me to say that is a wrong action. But does that make it objectively wrong? Because, because what yes, if there's someone does, standing yeah. next to you and he's like, I don't know. Okay. But so, what if there's someone standing next to you who had, who doesn't have that emotional reaction? What, how do you determine between the two of you who's right? Is it still wrong? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't believe in moral subjectivity. So I think that it is still wrong. Yeah. I think it is still wrong. Mm -hmm. But that's so why do, I think that it, is, it is the goal of an individual to try to come to an understanding of what mor morality actually is in the world and to live that out. And I think that is an individual journey you go on, but Probably everyone thinks that their own morality is objective. I mean, I think that mine is objective. I'm sure that the person who thinks that it's okay to do, you know, to kick a dog or whatever, they probably think that their morality is perfectly fine as well. And they probably, oh, what, what do you mean? It's just a dog. Who cares? <laughs> so like, but you know, from my perspective, yeah, I think that there is moral uh, objectivity, but I don't, but I don't think that my, at least I don't believe that those morals would be are coming from, even though I have somewhat of a Christian background, it's not, I don't believe that those morals are coming from there. There's a lot of things I believe that are not that I believe are moral, which are not dictated by the Bible. And there's a lot of things that I think are immoral, which are, you know, um, not mm -hmm. uh, referenced in the, in the Bible either. So I think that my morality has been, has been an emergent thing, but it's emerged through my emotional response to the things that I see in the world.
Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we could talk about the specifics of of things that are moral and moral secondarily, but let's let's keep pursuing this question. So you see you see a guy kicking a dog, and he's like, I don't know, I think this is totally fine, and you say, I think that's immoral. How do we decide who's right or wrong between the two of you? How like like does that like I don't know. what I we're talking that, that's about? Just, that's an age yeah, it's an age age old question. I don't know that we I don't know that we will ever. Like, I just think the best thing that I can try to do is to use my actions and the you know the power of my own persuasiveness to persuade persuade people of my own morality, which is that can we observe suffering through this action or can we observe a fundamental right being breached? In the case of stealing, that person might not particularly suffer if you've stolen something from them. They might not be in in you know pain, etc. But you've taken something from them, and I could appeal to I could appeal to a theory of property rights to articulate that, but I wouldn't. I don't feel like it's necessarily co- to, to go to any kind of religious text to to articulate that. I think it can be our, it can be reasoned outside of that. Because even if you read it in a in a in a book, right? I mean, you might read the Bible and say, "Wow, well, this resonates with me. It seems in line with my own morals." But there might be someone else who's written a book. You know, the the, the Church of Satan might have written a book, and you read it and you go, "Oh God, this is awful." Like, you know, I don't resonate mm. with any of this. So ultimately, even if you ascribe to Christian uh, doctrine, etc. Even if you even if you you subscribe to that, you've still used your own moral framework to say this is what I agree with. This is something that I feel is is moral in my life. You could have just as easily read another book, and I'm sure that you do. You probably think that most of the other books that you read, you might read, uh, you know, the Quran or, or something else, and say, look, this doesn't agree with my morals. I don't agree with this, that, and the other. So you're still using something inherent within you to even decide which book you follow. So I think if that comes mm-hmm. first, I think if that underpins everything. I know you disagree with this because I heard your your um, debate with my friend Andrew Howard, which I would I'll try and remember to. Put oh, that is in that how we well, connect? That was it. Well, no, no, I was already following your stuff anyway. I just he happened oh, okay. to come up on your feed when I was when I was um, when I was listening to it. But yeah, it was it was a really interesting debate, and I you know I definitely recommend people check it out. But yeah, just just on that point, I'll let you respond to it. Yeah, so so um, so what you're talking about is called uh, moral relativism. Right, this idea that who, how can we arbitrate between all these different perspectives on morality, and perhaps on some level they all are equally valid. Now, this is where now in, in the in the individual example of one guy, two guys standing next to each other, one dude's kicking a dog. Don't kick dogs, people. By the way, um, <laughs> do not try this at home. But where one dude's kicking a dog, and 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 you're there, and you don't like it. Well, what if, what if we run this out and we have like 50 people kicking dogs and you're there alone, right? And they say, what do you mean? There's more of us than there are you. That makes us right, right? How, but how do you feel in that moment? You probably still feel equal revulsion, right? Or what if you have, or what if you have a a worse situation where you have a couple people torturing another person and the person like lying there being tortured is like, I'm suffering, but like, I want to, I want to suffer, Right. Maybe on some level, there's a little bit of revulsion there. Everyone's consenting. And what if they then try to force that perspective on you? Because all positions are equally valid, right? So you start getting into this position where moral relativism, where everyone you know, is, is equally right, you start getting into a, a, a power struggle, where it's who can assert their power to impo- impose their morality on other people. This is what human, in many cases, and this is what I, I hear you pointing to, that you see all these different contest, contests towards competing value systems that leads to, that leads to chaos. And so, the, you know, this this book and that book and that book. How do we decide? That's that's kind of what I hear mm-hmm. you saying, right? Yeah. Okay. So, the position that the position that Christianity takes is that 
we feel inside ourselves that there is a transcendent moral law that manifests in many cases in the form of fairness. Like he, I think he uses the example of like riding on the tube, you know, and like someone comes and takes the seat right, right. A second before you takes the parking spot. Like that's not fair. Little kids have this innate sense of fairness. That's not fair. And where did no one taught them fairness? They feel it. Where does that come from? It seems to be woven into us at the deepest, at the deepest level in a way that we can't take out. And that points to the existence of a transcendent reality beyond, beyond ourselves, right? That points to something higher that exists outside of space and time that hands morality down to us. This is something that we might call a God, right? Well, then the question becomes, what is the nature of that God? How can we, how can we know? Which is a very different question than saying we just have to sort out our moral relativism. It's a very different thing to say this transcendent morality has come down from on high telling us how to behave as humans. Now, that's the first part of the Christian story, that the sense of fairness and moral rightness doesn't come from within us, but far above and beyond us, and it comes down to us. So that's the law. That's the moral law. That's the first part of the Christian story that makes that, that, that uh, and we'll stop there for now, but that's the first half. There's another half, which we'll get to, which is, which is the powerful part of Christianity. But you're with me so far. Yeah, I'm with you so far. Yeah, just let me okay. inter interject there, yes, there real, real quick, because, because I don't, I actually wouldn't disagree with you that there is an inherent morality. I don't advocate at all for moral subjectivity, and I think there is moral objectivity. Right. I don't know whether, I think that there is, there is always a, a moral um, state which we are, which is imbued. So like you say, you know, it, whether you decide that that has come through the Bible and through Christianity or not, I still think there is that and that exists. And I still think there is a moral object, morally objective action to take in any situation. I just disagree. I just don't see why Christianity specifically is the only route to that because you go and ask a Muslim and a Muslim will say, oh yeah, there is, I don't agree with moral subjectivity either, but my moral objectivity is, comes through the Quran and the teachings of, of uh, Allah. So mm, that's, the second, that's, that's the, the second thing, half of Christianity. Because, because, okay, right. I'll let you get that. Just give me one second for, to finish this mm -hmm, point. So, mm -hmm. so I don't mean you and there's, and there's a, that's all right. Yeah. So there's you and there's the, the, the Muslim person and you're in different parts of the world and he's been given the Quran and you've been given the Bible and you say, I've read this and I understand the morality that isn't being, that is being uh, passed down through this teaching and it is morally objective and this is what I'm going to follow. And the Muslim is doing the exact same thing for, for his book. And both of you actually are using your own, you're using something outside of that because when you were born, you hadn't read the Quran the day you were, you were born. You know, at some point you read the Quran, at some point you read the Bible. You've already, at that point, you're, you're going to have to use something within yourself to decide which one is moral and which one is not. So at some point, something is coming outside of the teaching. There's something inherent. And I would call that God. I would actually call that God. It's just that I don't know whether it's a Christian God or a, or an Islam God or something completely different, which is not necessarily describable in, in, you know, in human language. Mm -hmm. so, so, the tr so morality can come from one of two different places. It either comes from within us and coming from within us, it will naturally reflect different circumstances and times, Right. That's, that's a form of moral, moral subjectivism, or it comes from outside of us. It's either come, there's a choice, either inside or outside of us. The Christian perspective is that morality comes from, the moral law comes from outside of us, right? And, and I think you agree that you feel within yourself yeah. that morality, if morality only comes from within us, then 
you know, that's moral relativism, moral subjectivism. And you don't agree with that. Yeah. So you believe in some sense that morality is, is objective. It comes from beyond yes. us from a trans. Okay, great. So where, so I think we could probably agree then that that morality, if it does come from outside of us, the, the moral law in itself is, is perfect. Like a moral, a moral law that was imperfect, you know, wouldn't be a moral law. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so the only thing that can create a perfect thing must itself be perfect. Yes. Uh, like yeah. An imperfect thing can't, can't. Okay, great. So, so we can call that perfect thing and it's perfect moral law, God. We could yeah. agree with that. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can any of us as men or human beings ever keep the moral law perfectly? Have you ever experienced yourself, even for a day, being able to keep mm -hmm. what you consider your own moral laws, you know, perfectly? I don't mean no. to put you on the spot. I haven't either. Mm -hmm. right. so, so we are constantly living. So a perfect God creates perfect moral law, right? That we then only follow imperfectly. We can yeah. agree with that, right? Okay. Yeah. So we are constantly living in violation of God's moral law. A per we are constantly living in violation of a perfect God's perfect moral law. Correct? Sure. Yeah. Yes. That's the, that's the human condition, right? And that's, that's original sin and all that. So we're constantly living in perfect violation of perfect God's moral law. So that creates a gap between us and God, right? God is perfect. We mm -hmm. are imperfect. Mm -hmm. We are okay. Now, how can we cross that gap between us and God if we want to be united to God? Can we ever attain the perfection of God? Can we ever attain to the perfection of moral law? Probably not. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, probably, probably, probably not. Like, I, I don't think mm -hmm. I would do a pretty good job unless I did probably nothing. <laughs> right. And even, even mm -hmm. that I would probably fail at. So if we want to be united to God, if we can't get up to God, if then the only thing that can happen is God has to come down to us, right? If we mm -hmm. want to cross, we can't cross the gap our way, but God can cross the gap his way, right? Um, I don't know. You're losing me a bit here because if, 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 if the God breaks it, so if, if a God, an omniscient God breaks its own moral law, surely that it no longer becomes a God anyway, in which case we can't recognize that as a God because now, now that that is no longer a God because it's not in, in its perfection essence. Oh, God can't, God can't break its own moral law. If, if, God, if, if there is an appearance of God breaking its moral law, it's, it's only a, a lack of human perception, not a flaw on God's part. Okay. So you're saying it can't work the other way. You you said that humans can't become, can't embody moral perfection in order to achieve uh, the God state. And mm -hmm. you are also saying that God can't go the other way. There is always going to be that gap that exists. No, God can go the other way because God can keep his own and fulfill his own moral law perfectly. In, in he, as a human. Didn't, didn't, didn't you just say that God would have to violate his moral law in order to come out of that state of, of uh, no. the God state? No, no. So, so for, for us, so God remains perfect. So, so we can never attain upwards to perfection and match God. Right. But God mm -hmm. can remain perfect and come down to us. Ah, I see. 
can remain yes. perfect and come down to us. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. that is Jesus Christ. So right. Jesus Christ came down. This is what he says. I came, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's a famous scripture verse. So he came down as the God man, the perfect human being who kept all of God's moral law faithfully and with the right intention within himself to unite us to God. So this is, so the first half is the moral law is transcendent, right? And the, that's, that's, uh, that's what we see in the old Testament, but Christianity preaches what's called imminence. God is with us. So not only that God is transcendent above us in the Christian story in the new Testament, God comes down as man to be with us, right? And to sacrifice himself for us so that we can be in reconciliation with him. And he does so without violating his own moral law. But how do you know that it was not Muhammad or Buddha or any of the other kind of religious like prophets that that are not that essence, that are not that God essence. Like you've made a determination that this is the, that, that Jesus is that um, entity, but other, hmm. other people who are following other religions make a determination that it's a, that it's a different um, figure in their religious tradition. Hmm. And they're coming to their conclusion based upon their pre-existing moral framework that they've said, this abides by my moral framework that I have, and it abides by what I believe, et cetera. They're coming to it and that's a subjective decision they're taking. And then you're also taking your own, own subjective decision saying, well, look, I agree with the, the, the teachings of the Bible. I agree with this. I agree with the story of Jesus, et cetera. So you then um, follow Christ. And what I'm trying to understand is if there is only one answer, if, that, if there is only one answer and it can be truly known and it can be known without, no, without any doubt that Christianity and Jesus is, is God, et cetera, and that is the, the truth, then... Why haven't these other people come to it? They've come to a different conclusion. And, and how, have you, how do you know you've made that decision based on the, a pure understanding and it's not based on some mm. kind of moral corruption that you already hold within you? Because, because presumably mm -hmm. you think that the reason, and I'm not, don't, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but That's the fine. reason that someone else thinks that Muhammad is that figure is maybe they have some inherent corruption within their own um, moral framework that means that that's the God that they um, ascribe, that's the God that they believe in because mm. for whatever reason, they have a different disposition. They believe in that. So how do you factor that out? That's, that's always my, my question with these, uh, with these religious ideas is how do you factor out people's own inherent, um, moral corruption and, and bias, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So part of that, and this is, this is great. Part of that is because, um, the, the, there's a difference of categories. So Buddha, um, Buddha never called himself a Messiah. Buddha simply said um, that through meditation, you can untie the knot of your own consciousness and you can simply cease existing. That's essentially what Vipassana is. You've done Vipassana. That's kind of like you unwind yeah. the knot of your consciousness and you cease existing. So what is that? It's essentially saying that you can be united upwards to God through your own works, through meditation as it works. It's, it's a lot of work actually to do that. So, so again, we like, if we, there's a gap between us keeping the moral law and being reconciled with God, what Buddhism says is we can cross the gap to perfection, which is essentially non-existence, which is sort of, that's, we can talk about that. Muhammad never called himself the Messiah. He, he just called himself a prophet who points to a God who remains transcendent. God never crosses the gap. It always points up. So in some sense, comparing Jesus, and this happens a lot in, 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 in the, the new age or progressive spirituality world, whatever, whatever the right term is, is that 
uh, Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad are all likened to each other when they, they, when they couldn't be more different. Jesus could not be more different from Muhammad and from Buddha because both Muhammad and Buddha say, and there are many figures similar, like Confucius, Lao Tzu, stuff like that. These are all humans, right? Who describe themselves as humans, not as divine, who say that through your works, you can be united upwards to God, right? They all, this is why the new age kind of hangs together because it has all this idea baked into it, right? Christianity says the exact opposite. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He came as one third of God, uniting himself with us coming down. We cannot cross up to God. God comes down to us in a staggering gesture of, of grace and love for his creations. Because remember, we're talking about we as humanity broke the covenant in Adam and Eve. We broke the covenant. We, we screwed up. And so who comes to pay the debt of our screw up? God does in the form of Christ, one third of himself. He pays the cost for us. The term is he becomes both just, he keeps his own moral law and justifier, meaning he's the guy who declares us just at the same time. God comes down to us and Jesus, and you can read this for yourself. Jesus repeatedly through the, through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John testifies himself as being God, right? Not like and there's a, we can take that all apart, but this is why the God is a Trinity in Christianity. That's another side discussion. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But, and then you read the rest of the, of the New Testament, which includes letters from eyewitnesses. So what a lot of people don't know is when you read the New Testament of the Bible, the New Testament is the four gospels, which are, um, which are eyewitness accounts, right? Of, of what took place, four different perspectives of what took place. And then there's the epistles, which are mostly written by Paul, Paul was a Jew who persecuted Christians actively and was converted and then became one of the most powerful advocates for Christianity, plus other eyewitnesses. So the gospel testimonies were all written in the first century within decades, within years or decades of Christ dying, all, all completed by 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. The first, and you can look at this up on Wikipedia. The first writings about Buddha didn't come until hundreds of years until after he is alleged to have lived. And so the letters, the New Testament was written like right after they wrote it, started writing it down. And Buddha and Muhammad were centuries later. Um, and so they were men. Christ was God and man in one, which is pretty profound. So we'll stop there because I can take it further. No, that's really, really interesting. I mean, that, yeah, I love learning about this stuff. I don't actually know too, enough about uh, know. Christianity to really kind of con continue it too much more, but I, I really appreciate you kind of like laying out some of the, those ideas and talking about those differences. Cause I certainly didn't realize that there was such a difference between even yes. especially Jesus and Muhammad. I thought that there was a very similar story going on there, but they essentially just had like different storylines, but were both prophets were both supposedly an incarnation of God, but sounds like that's not the case in for Muhammad, which I didn't know. So um, no Muhammad, Mu Islam has to deny Christ's death on the cross, which is one of the most uh, well-attested historical events in history. It has to deny that ever occurred to support its religion, which is like, has to deny historical reality. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in these ideas. I think there's a lot to, to gain for it. I, I'm very into a lot of different ideas, and I think there's a lot of truth to various ideas. So for instance, I've done ayahuasca recently. I really think that there's mm. a lot of um, you, good uses, I, I believe still in, in, in plant medicine and psychedelics that people can can still be elevated. But I also don't 
um, by any means reject more traditional uh, religion. And I certainly think that Christianity as well, um, those stories have a lot of inherent truth in them. I know that you said in your podcast as well that like um, Tolkien imbued a lot of those ideas into things like Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings is mm -hmm. like, <laughs> I mean, that for me was like a spiritual teaching. Is, mm -hmm. I absolutely love that series. And I think there's a huge amount of truth. So I think there's truth to all these things. And I'm just very interested in it generally. So uh, I don't know if I have too much more on, on that topic other than, yeah, just thanks for, thanks for sharing your ideas. You're welcome, man. Thanks for, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, no worries. So just to, um, to kind of like finish up because we've been all, you know, we've been going quite, quite a while and I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time. I, oh, I guess awesome. just before, yeah, just before we, we like finish things off, I want to know from a, just a wider perspective, what is it you're trying to achieve in the world? You know, what's your, what do you feel like your mission is here? Cause I, I listened to your podcast and you put, obviously put like a lot of effort into it. You obviously put a lot of man hours into, to really kind of like making it sound mm. great and, and, and have, have this, this awesome feel. And it kind of feels like you've, you've been on this personal epic journey of your own. And then now you're doing all of this work and you're mentoring people and all the rest of it. So like, what is it you want to bring about in the world? What do you want, want your legacy to be? I really appreciate you asking this question. It's very timely. Thank you. Um, so I spent the first two years uh, where I was doing the Renaissance of Men working on a documentary film project. Um, and I'll send you some links about that. Trying to, again, document through film um, the 40-year history of, of what I'd call the Renaissance. Trying to interview the leaders and, and influential men and women that have kind of made it go. And I invested two years in that. Um, I had got to a point where I wasn't willing to spend another dollar of my own money on it. Um, and so I began, and plus it was wiser for me to begin trying to raise money. I was unsuccessful uh, raising money to do that, um, and which, which turned out to be a blessing. We can talk about that separately. Um, so well, that was a real top-down kind of effort. Like I want to create change from the top down, come with this big air assault of this document, of this you know Netflix quality documentary film project to influence the dialogue. Then I tried, so that didn't work. And so then I tried, um, then I tried to do a series of conferences, um, again, to make a sort of top-down collective influence. And I found that was an enormous, enormous amount of work to run those, um, and to, um, and to, and to make them go for, for very little, very little tangible reward. And I kind of burned myself out on trying these really top-down level things. And I, what I really think, and I really do mean this, I think it was God humbling me and telling me like, stop trying to be the hero. And um, because I had part of my journey was, you know, learning to be a hero. You know, part of the big travel that I took was me discovering my heroic ability. And, um, and I think God humbled me and said, stop trying to be the hero. And so what I do now is my real interest is in taking all these things that you've heard and all these things that I know and all of my experiences and giving them to men in one-on-one -on -one and group formats and helping make active changes in their lives one man at a time. And that's where the joy has always been for me is working one-on-one -on -one with men in conversations like this, kicking around, not necessarily philosophical ideas divorced from the individual concerns of their lives, but helping make them applicable to like, Will, what do I do in my life right now? I'm stuck in this situation, whether it be work or family or finance, and I've reached the end of myself. How do I get beyond this and say, okay, well, I happen to have all these experiences. Let's see what, what we can see and see if we can help describe a path out for you and let me support you in doing that. And that's the real joy for me now is to work one-on-one -on -one with men in conversations like this. Um, so you say, what is the, what is the mission? What, what am I trying to create? Uh, I'm not trying to change the world anymore. If that happens, you know, blessing of God, I'm trying to change individual men's lives like mine has been changed. 
and really get back to um, what I originally created the Renaissance of, of men to be, which was to help men create their own personal Renaissance rather than create a global Renaissance of men. God's got that. I'm happy to help men create their individual personal Renaissance. And that's my mission right now. That's great. Yeah, that's really awesome. I think that like people who are doing stuff like community based now, it's just needed more than ever. You know, like I honestly, like for me, seeing everything that happened with COVID, I was just like, people have just lost a sense of like who they are. People have lost a sense of like their own direction and they need, I think people need like leaders more than ever. And I don't want to necessarily kind of like, you know, blow smoke up anyone's ass and be like, oh, you're a leader or anything. But even just people sure. who are capable of just steering people towards a, a deeper understanding of like the actions they should be taking in the world when people have just moved off center. I think that's super important because I think so many people just went into this hysterical state that, I mean, the world is a pretty hysterical place generally, but like that period really mm -hmm. just showed to me like people need people who are just like calm collected who can just kind of like guide and stuff and i definitely think you've got that energy so um you know it's awesome that you're doing all that stuff for men thank you that's a real honor thank you i appreciate that one more thing that i just want to uh want to ask you before we round up have you got any book recommendations you always seem to mention mention books in your episodes and everyone i listen mm. to has new books so i've been like starting to compile a list but I want to know like the top like three because I've already got, got a list of tons of books, but I don't know where to begin. So what would you, what would be your your top kind of three books that, that you'd recommend for, for people to read? So I have a I have a men's group called the Council, and uh, this is a, men, a a men's accountability group where we all work together to um, to make progress in our lives along a, the framework that I base my mentorship on. And there's a list of five books that are required reading for that group, and so I'll give you uh, I'll give you three of them. So the first one is uh, a book called Transforming the Inner Man by John Loren and Paula Sandford. And what's very powerful about this book is it talks about inner transformational healing work that you and I have both experienced, but it talks about it from a Christian perspective. And this is how, and one of the things that really lacks in the Christian church today is they don't really have a good understanding of how to help people heal their inner hurts. Um, they're, they're, I think the church may used to have had that, but it's lost it. And so a lot of people go looking outside of Christianity for healing when there's so much healing to be found in it. So Transforming the Inner Man by John Loren and Paul Sanford is how to create inner healing and transformation from a Christian perspective. Changed my life when I read it. The second book I'd recommend is called Walk the Narrow. Um, and this is by, uh, it's, it's by three, uh, former special forces, Guys, American Special Forces guys, they're anonymous. I don't know who they are, um, but it's about uh, biblical masculinity from a warrior's perspective, a Christian warrior's perspective. Whoever these men are, it's clear that they are very sincere and very real about their experiences. They're extraordinarily well-read, humblingly well-read in classic literature and philosophy as well as the Bible. And it's clear that they have really seen some things. And it's a very, very powerful book. And the ending of it is is surprising and 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 very uh, and very humbling and very beautiful. So Walk the Narrow is the second book that one of the second required books um, for my for my men's group. Uh, and the third book that comes to mind is a book called Thoughts for Young Men by J C Ryle R Y L E. And this is a book that J C Ryle wrote maybe a hundred or so years ago that is about the the temptations that young men have faced all throughout their lives that they have to overcome in order to be husbands and fathers. And he writes in very clear, very direct, very bracing language. Like it definitely calls you to attention the way that he writes. And he talks about the things that he says are like, look, the problems that we're facing today in 2023 as men are not new. In fact, they're just, you know, the newest manifestations of very old problems. And J.C. Ryle's book, um, Thoughts for Young Men, 
speaks to those again from a Christian perspective. These are three Christian books, which is the work that I do. But I think um, every every reader will find um, will find value and inspiration in them. Okay, great. Yeah, appreciate that. And yeah, I guess just um, finally, if you want to just share with people like anywhere they can find you, if they want to connect with you, and uh, you know where they can find your podcast and all all the rest of it. But yeah, just before that. Thank you from my end, like for coming on here and spending so much of your time here talking to me. It's been it's been awesome. It's been like over two and a half hours now. So, uh, yeah, it's been it's been great to chat about these things, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again in the future. This is fantastic. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, I mean, if you've listened to my podcast, you know that I regularly do uh, three and four hour episodes. So it's great to be a guest on a guest on one too. So it's a lot of fun. I love this. I got energy for this for days. So if you want to, if people want to find out more about me, you can uh, go to renofmen.com/links. And then from there, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Ren of Men, Instagram at Ren of Men. Um, my podcast is linked there as well. YouTube.com slash at Ren of Men, basically Ren of Men everywhere. And if you're interested in my one-on-one men's mentorship, you can go to renofmen.com slash mentorship and read all and read more about that. Great. Thanks a lot, Will. Thank you, Johnny.